Good morning, world. My name's Stu. This is Fernando Ortega. He's a worshiper. Let the word Let's worship. Of my mouth be pleasing to you.
Holy Father, I give you praise. I give you glory and thanksgiving and honor and power and might and blessing unto you, my faithful King. My God, I ask you today in the name of Jesus Christ to bless those, anyone who hears today, bless them, Father. If somebody needs to be healed of a physical infirmity, my God, would you touch them even right now? If somebody needs to be healed in the Spirit, my Father, would you touch them even right now as they listen? so that they know that you are near. For my God is not a God who hides, but he is the living God. Let the world know, my Father, that you are God. O righteous Father, exalt your holy name today. Glorify your holy name, for you alone are worthy. You alone are good. I thank you, my Father. I thank you that I can stand here, even right where I stand right now, barefoot, to give praise to your name, apart from destruction, apart from sin, but that I can stand here justified because of the work of Jesus Christ and offer praise to you and you hear me for what God is there who is like you. who is so willing to give his very heart to mankind. What God is there who is like you? Thank you. Thank you, my Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, thank you. Amen. All right. Mark 10, 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. And they will spit on him. And they will scourge him. And they will kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now I'm not sure that I've ever heard this passage of scripture preached before. And yet when I read through it, 
the words begin to preach to me. They begin to preach a sermon that is not constructed by the inanimate word. But within my heart, the text becomes a sermon that is painted with the skillful hand of an angelic artist. A living discourse painted within the parameters of life and time, history, animation, into movement. Then I begin to reason. The imagery of Mark 10 grips my soul so deeply, transporting my mind from the here and now to the there and then. But why is it that I cannot seem to find the right words to expound on that which I can see so clearly and lucidly within the theater of my heart and soul? It is like trying to explain to someone the beauty of a Van Gogh, I suppose. It's not hard to give the vision, but almost impossible to relate the substance. And yet, all things are possible to him who believes. The reason being, I think, that there are not too many sermons built around Mark 10, 32 through 34, is that the text does not appear to be deeply theological. These verses are part of a narrative, part of a story, a snippet of a moment in history. But the narrative nature of the text is precisely what seizes my attention. Especially since the man, Jesus, is the one who is acting out the lead role in the story. I find that I'm often drawn to the verses of Scripture that give an inside glimpse into the short, fleeting life of the man Jesus. For Jesus was killed when he was only 33 years old, having been delivered over by his own people to a Roman governor for destruction, Pontius Pilate. An irrefutable chronicled moment in our history on earth. You know, I often find myself being transfixed by verses like Luke 4.32, where it says that those who heard him speak were amazed and astonished at his teaching because his words had authority. And I always wonder, what did that look like? It's verses like this that decorate my heart with imagery, causing me to muse and daydream, and to wonder, wondering what it must have been like to kick around with Jesus on the dusty roads of the Middle East over 2,000 years ago. Or verses like Mark 6, 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. I can almost see the dumbfounded looks on the faces of the people as they turn toward one another locking eyes in muddled bewilderment. I can almost feel the electricity in the air. I can almost see the astonishment on the faces of the people as they suspiciously peer in on Jesus as he heals the man with the withered hand. It must have been like watching a dead old tree come to life again. 
in but a few seconds. A tree with a stench, sullen and wearied, but suddenly, as if arising from the dead, it stands tall and proud. A tree that was but a gangly brown spot on the earth, but suddenly it is green and vibrant, flourishing, bearing fruit, even as the birds of the field once more come to make their homes within. It must have been like watching the caterpillar become the butterfly in but a moment and right before their very eyes. Or verses like Luke 21, 38, which says that all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. I can just see the people hastily rolling themselves out of bed before sunup, even before the crickets finish their song, grabbing their coffees to go, and making their way to this man, Jesus, who had hijacked their attention. This man who had consumed them with wonder and left them in muddled awe. Or what about John 7:46? The story goes that the Pharisees send officers to arrest Jesus and they find him. And so they prepare their shackles and handcuffs and they move in to make the arrest. So they're about to make the arrest and somewhat baffingly, within but a few seconds of being in his presence, they find themselves handcuffed, handcuffed of spirit and spellbound because of his words. The things that he was saying and the power and authority with which he spoke, they were just words. But as soon as they left the mouth of Jesus, his words somehow manifested themselves as a mighty warrior. A warrior not perceived with the eyes, but with the heart. The words of Jesus somehow presented themselves as a strong soldier, ferocious, dominant, and prevailing, causing the hearts of men to burn like an oven. So the story goes that the officers eventually returned to the Pharisees without Jesus. And the Pharisees would say to the officers, what's going on? Where is he? He was just right there. Where is Jesus? And all the proud manly officers could say as they shrunk down before the Pharisees. The officers no longer girded with armor, but now clad in awkwardness and embarrassment. All they could say was, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. This verse is but part of a narrative. Nothing in it super, nothing in it super theological. And yet still, I find myself enchanted by the picture that it paints. Now Jesus wasn't standing there with swords clubs, and spears. He made no threats. Jesus was the lily among thorns. Jesus wasn't spitting and kicking up dust. He didn't have a frightening mob with him. Jesus wasn't the leader of an angry horde who were intimidating the officers. 
Jesus was a man of meekness, gentleness, and love. They just didn't touch him. Because for some remarkable reason, the words that Jesus spoke and the authority in which he delivered those words fell upon the officer's ears as if they were listening to the boss. It's as if the words of Jesus were the final word, the authoritative word, even though he offered zero physical resistance. For Jesus did not even extinguish a flickering wick. By deed, Jesus was about as confrontational as a gentle breeze. But by word, Jesus was a Category 5 hurricane or a 10.0 magnitude earthquake, juddering the hearts of men to its very foundation. But don't confuse meekness with weakness. Because Jesus did indeed flash a sword. But his sword was his spoken word. A sword which did not take life, but gave life. A sword which did not close eyes, but it opened eyes. A sword that was formed and sharpened by Master Blacksmith. And a sword that when swung, cut deep. Even penetrating the deepest part of the heart and soul. A sword that left the heart bleeding. But it left no visible wound. Now these verses that we've just gone over. You will not hear often preached. Because they supposedly lack theological significance. And yet it is this very fact, I think, that sends me into a trance. As I wonder then, why am I so captivated by them? The solution is simple. The solution is simple, I think. The narrative paints a splendid picture whereas theology draws up an equation. And I always did much better in art class than I did in math class. Now, don't get me wrong. I study a lot of theology. I'm a preacher. I must. Just simply making an observation, meditating out loud. All right, let's go back to Mark 10, 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, one of the reasons I love these narrative passages 
is that they peel back the layers of the onion. That is the character of the man Jesus. But another reason I find them fascinating is that they often shine a bright spotlight on the characters of everybody else. They often present a contrast between the character of Jesus and the character of everyone else around him. Now these narrative passages often reveal the disparities between the mindset of Jesus and the mindset of everyone else. One man is love and another man is hate. One man is gentle and another man is harsh and abrasive. One man is kind and another mean. One man is full of faith and another doubts. One man sees victory and glory and another sees death and destruction. One man sees tribulations and trials and another sees a great opportunity to grow. And all of this coming about under the same exact set of circumstances. Mark 10.32, for instance, we just read it. <clears throat> and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Now, this is the third time in the book of Mark that Jesus had to explain to the disciples what was going to happen to him. That he would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And that they would condemn him to death and that they would hand him over to the Gentiles. And that they would mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. This is the third time. In the book of Mark, that Jesus had to take them, take them aside to explain to them the suffering to come. But it's also the third time in the book of Mark that Jesus told them plainly that three days after his suffering, scourging, crucifixion, and death, he would rise again. But the disciples simply were not hearing that part, even though it was part of the same sentence. It's as if the disciples' ears became stopped up as soon as they heard Jesus say, I will be killed. And their ears stopped up, not simply because they cared for Jesus, but because to the disciples, the killing of Jesus meant that they were sure to be killed as well. They were his friends. They were his disciples. They could see no further than what was happening right in front of their faces. They sold themselves as servants to the circumstances. They believed in the destruction of Jesus because they could see it. They could see it coming. But they did not believe in the glory to come by the way of his resurrection. They could see the rugged cross being planted into the earth. But they could not see the Christ whom God would raise up into the heavens. Whereas Jesus, not willing to give his heart to the way that things appear. With the eyes of faith, was looking past the suffering to the day of justification and restoration. And it's not that Jesus needed to be justified because of sin. But Jesus was declared to be both the just and the justifier. As God raised him from the grave by spirit of power and of holiness. A day that Jesus by faith foresaw. But his disciples could not. 
even though Jesus testified to a day of joy and justification, just as often as he testified to his suffering and death. Do you guys remember the story of uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? Now, Lazarus lived in Bethany, and Bethany was very near Jerusalem. And the disciples knew that the same people who wanted Jesus dead in Jerusalem would be in Bethany as well. So the disciples say to Jesus, this is John eleven eight, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And then in verse 16, Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, says to his fellow disciples, Well, let us go also, so that we may die with him. But let's go back just one verse. Let's go back just one verse and look at verse 15. Jesus had just said to the disciples and Thomas, this is verse 15, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. That is, I am glad I was not there while Lazarus was alive to heal him. Lazarus has now been dead for four days. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. So in verse 15, Jesus makes it clear to the disciples that going to Bethany was a good thing. It was to be a time of growth for the apostles. But still the first words out of Thomas's mouth are, well, let us go with them so that we may die also. Jesus saw Bethany as an opportunity to glorify God. But the disciples could not see anything other than their own destruction. Once again, expressing their negativity, despising faith, and giving their hearts over to the way things appeared. Truth and appearance for the man of God is always in conflict. In fact, Jesus says, John eleven four. Speaking about going to Lazarus, Jesus says, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. Jesus sees great opportunity, glory even, two grand, optimistic things. But the disciples see persecution, death, and destruction. Jesus observed life through the rose-colored lenses of trust and faith. Jesus always being heavenly-minded. But the disciples could believe nothing other than that which they could see. And their own interpretation of that which they could see. For the man of God, truth, and circumstance are always in conflict. In appearance does not equal truth. The disciples were yet to internalize what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7 But Jesus, he was always heavenly minded. Even as a young boy. Tell me if you remember this story. I didn't plan on bringing this story up. When Jesus was 12 years old, he and his parents, along with many others, 
traveled by caravan to Jerusalem to observe the feast of the Passover. It's the story in Luke 2. Well, the story goes that when the celebration was over and his family was returning home, the boy Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware that he had stayed. So assuming that he was in their company, they traveled on for a day before they began to look for him among their relatives and friends. And when they couldn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. Now finally, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard Jesus speak were astounded at his understanding and his answers. This is the boy Jesus. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mom said, Child, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And the boy Jesus says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But it says they didn't understand the statement that he was making. But did you see how the boy Jesus ever so gently removed the title of father off of his dad, Joseph, and set it upon his heavenly father, God. Jesus was already heavenly minded. Jesus was already fixated on the truth as opposed to circumstances and the way things seem even at 12 years old. Just a small glimpse <laughs> into the character of the boy, Jesus. All right. Let's go back to Mark 10, 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. Now what does this verse have to tell us about the man, Jesus? Now, to answer that question, we'll have to take into account the counsel of the whole Word of God. It's going to help us bring more of a context to this verse. <clears throat> now, the passage says that the disciples were amazed and astonished that Jesus was moving with haste and purpose toward the land of his own death, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, where at this time in history... The rage of man was rising like the Nile, overflowing its banks with the hopes of swallowing Jesus. The prophecy of Isaiah 60, excuse me, the prophecy of Isaiah 50, 6 and 7, a prophecy that is written as the very words of Jesus, even though it was written seven, 800 years before his birth. Isaiah 56 and 7 says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I'm not disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. So Isaiah depicts Jesus with a face set like flint Enduring all of the humiliation and suffering that was to be his lot. 
And Mark 10.32 depicts Jesus with his face set like flint even as he purposefully and decisively and somewhat obstinately really with pace and persistence moved towards the city of his own murder where Jesus was sure to be dissolved in the thunderous storm of fury that was brewing just ahead. And yet Mark 10.32 shows Jesus marching past all of the disciples, separating himself as one who is being driven along by sheer will, as if he were being prodded by stick-called zeal, swiftly moving ahead of all of them as he made his way toward Jerusalem, the land of uproar, a land whose men had smoke coming out of their nostrils. The city, the very city that was to be the architect of his cross, and yet still, he stomped ahead of the crowd, now seemingly all alone and resolute, leaving them all perplexed, astonished, and amazed. Who is this man who is so ready to accept his own death, even with passion? Jesus knew that death was imminent, no doubt. Jesus knew that with every step that he took, he was drawing closer and closer to the jaws of the lion. A beast who was preparing itself to ribbit him in a frenzy. Jesus could clearly see the smoke ascending on the horizon. He was not unaware or naive but rather he was fully cognizant to the reception that he was to receive upon his arrival to Jerusalem. But with the heavenly eyes of faith and an unshakable trust in his father, he was able to see past the demolition to the rebuilding that was to come. Jesus could clearly see the rugged cross being fastened to the earth. But he instead chose to look to the sky where peace, joy, and glory awaited. Now, does the haste of Jesus on that dusty road that day many years ago mean that Jesus was not afraid? <laughs> That's a good question. Hebrews 5, 7 says that in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And on that fatefully, the very night that Jesus was to be confronted by an angry mob, a horde bearing lanterns, clubs, and swords, the very night he was to be arrested, 
setting the course for his crucifixion while he was in the garden of Gethsemane praying with his friends, his disciples. And this was a garden, by the way, that Jesus was known to gather with his disciples. So it is clear that Jesus was not hiding. Matthew 26, 37 through 39 says that in the garden he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is consumed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then going a little farther beyond them, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Now was the man Jesus afraid of dying? Now I don't know that I can say that with the sheer confidence of Scripture because, because even if he was afraid, we cannot definitively say of what. Was it death itself that he feared or was it the wrath of God that he feared? So was the man Jesus afraid on that last day? Well, we know that he was distressed. We know that he was overcome by sorrow to the point of death. We know that he asked God to remove him from the situation if possible. We know that Jesus sullenly cried to his God with tears and anguish. We know that as Jesus was praying, he was overcome by anxious thought. As his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the earth. But was he afraid? Well, let me ask this question. Would it matter to you if he were? And if so, in what way? Yesterday I came across an article online. The title was something like this. Did Jesus shrink from the cross or was he courageous? And this got me thinking. I immediately began to ponder the attributes of courage. What is it? I began to wonder. What is it that truly defines courage? If Jesus did indeed become afraid, as he contemplated his own impending suffering and death, even if his heart shook like the trees of the forest, as he considered the damage that was to be done to the temple that is his body, a vicious obliteration doled out by the very hand of God, even if Jesus was terrified at the thought of being battered by the unrelenting hand of judgment, shuddering at the thought of being the recipient to the white-hot, all-consuming rebuke of God. Does it even matter? Does that mean then that Jesus was not courageous? On the contrary, I believe. It takes no courage to walk around the lion's cage, but it takes much courage to enter in. It takes no courage to watch the battle from the middle of the sea or from the top of a mountain, but it takes much courage to pick up a weapon and fight. In this preacher's mind, courage doesn't even become courage until there is something to fear. In the same way that perseverance doesn't become perseverance until there is something to overcome. Fearlessness is not courage. 
but to be afraid and yet still face your fear with purpose, resolve, and unwavering tenacity. Now that's courage. So does it matter if Jesus was afraid? Well, it matters so much. It matters because it teaches me something wonderful about the character of the man Jesus. If Jesus was afraid of God's fury that was to fall like fire directly upon his broad shoulders, if he was afraid in any way, it only makes me love him more. Because if he was afraid, and if he was sorrowful, and if he was distressed, and if he was afflicted at the thought of what was to come, what love for you and I he must have felt, what strength of character, what courage he must have possessed to freely offer himself up to be the heir of the wrath of God. You see, Jesus didn't attempt to save us by reaching his arm through the lion's cage to pull us out. Jesus threw open the gate and he rushed in. If Jesus was afraid, it only leaves me astonished, just as his disciples were. If Jesus was afraid, it only leaves me thankful and grateful that he would hand himself over to suffering and death as the payment for my redemption, for my life. And he did it all with a heart of perseverance, determination, purpose, and urgency. You see, Jesus may have been a ship tossed at sea, but he was plowing through the surf, full speed ahead, neither looking to the left nor to the right, and certainly Jesus never looked back. The will of the man Jesus was one that was forged in fire. You see, the strongest of wills, they are not born, they are built. And they are built upon the rock called overcomer. Every time we overcome our fear, we lay a beam. Every time through perseverance that we overcome that which afflicts our spirit, we lay yet another. Every time we trust God, instead of believing in the circumstances that surround us, we lay yet another. Every time we march forward in faith, Resisting doubt, despising the shame, we lay yet another. Every time that we bear each other's burden, we lay yet another. Every time that we consider the life of someone else as more important than our own, we lay yet another. And in time, the structure is complete, built sturdy and steadfast with materials that cannot be removed, destroyed, or burned. No matter how hot the raging fires of life become. You see, it is a structure within, and it is built by God, and it will not be moved by devil nor man, not by wind nor flood, because it is a structure built to endure all things. And its foundation is set deep. You see, Jesus had a will that was built upon the foundation of affliction. And it was as strong as iron. And it could not be moved. 
There may have been tears. But Jesus did not run from the cross. He literally ran to it. Jesus was in no way disillusioned to the menacing soiree that was to be thrown in his honor upon his arrival in Jerusalem. He knew that when he reached the border of Jerusalem, he would meet his antagonist face to face, and yet he marched on, stone-faced, despising the shame to come, setting his face like flint, he marched on much to the disciples' bewilderment and astonishment. Jesus had a will that was indestructible. Though, however, it could be bent, but it could not be broken. You see, the most indestructible steel is also the most flexible. So was Jesus afraid? Tell you what, man, I hope that he was. Because if he was, he has become for me today the perfect example of courage, strength of will, heroism, and love. Yes, Jesus had an iron will. But what is it that you think fixed that will? I just said it. What urged Jesus to have such a passion, it seems? A passion to be the one to intercede on the behalf of you and I. What pushed Jesus to offer himself up with such fervency to destruction? Oh, bless you, Lord. Upon that old rugged cross. It was love. It was love. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. You see, Jesus may have had an iron will, but Jesus was not an exacting or hard man. His will may have been iron, but his heart was flesh, and it was as soft as cotton. Jesus may have been filled to the brim with tenaciousness, purpose and resolve but he was in no way harsh abrasive or obstinate you see there have been many a man with an iron will who will crush any man who get in his way you see there have been many a man with an iron will who will stomp and tread and wipe their feet on any man who dare cross his path but not so with the man Jesus That's because the will of Jesus was fixed by his love for men and by his love for God. And his love was a love with fruit, proven by his zeal for the cross and what the cross represents. Our redemption and the glory of God. His love was a love proven by his incredible endurance and tenacity to finish the work that he had come to do. And his work on earth wasn't finished until he was dead. And now as Jesus hung on the cross, 
on that fateful day of passion and persistence with his dying breath, he says, it is finished. John 19.30 Bless you, Father. Now, now the wicked cease from raging and now the weary are at peace. All of the love that he had to give, he had given it with pure passion and at great cost. <laughs> but you see, great love, great love could care absolutely nothing of cost. All of his life, the fruit of sincere, unbridled love. Love, meekness, kindness, and gentleness in no way means weakness, as the world often supposes. As a matter of fact, and only my great God can do this, the pure power and strength and might of Jesus was perfectly manifested through love and faithfulness and goodness and meekness and kindness and gentleness and patience and zeal and perseverance. You see, the world often thinks that to love is to make oneself vulnerable a sort of joint in the armor but Jesus shows us that love it is not the armor love is the sword 